you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Numbers chapter 12. And I'm going to go ahead and say right before we get going, this, this sermon is going to bring some stuff up for some people. This is, uh, th- this is definitely a trigger warning. And we're, we're going to be specifically talking about race and how different people's experiences of race over time have uh, really affected a lot of things that, that perhaps some, some of us are not aware of. And so we're going to get into that. And so if a discussion about something that is that heavy is more than you are able to handle, like if you've got to go somewhere later and uh, that's not what, and you cannot have that stuff in your head right before you go like to a baby shower or whatever, then that's totally okay. Maybe take a walk around the block or something. Or if you're listening online and you're headed into work and you have to like give a good, like a big pre- presentation and like you need to focus, Maybe come back to this podcast later. So um, now that said, please don't turn away from this subject matter. This is really important stuff. And so if, if, you, if you need to take a minute and come back to this later, that's fine. But please do come back to it because I, I would argue this is really important stuff that we're going to be talking about. So that's what we're doing. So we're starting in the book of Numbers chapter 12. And what we've been doing in this series, if, if you haven't been with us or if you've been sort of in and out on this, but uh, what we've been doing with this whole series is we've been moving through the, the narrative of the scriptures and we've been trying to sort of identify What does it look like when God shows up in stories about people who are disempowered or marginalized? That always, it looks like a God who speaks specifically on behalf of or in support of people who have very little if no power. Well, we see it in the, we we started the whole series by looking at the story of the book of Exodus and talking about how the whole thing is inaugurated when the people who are enslaved cry out and God hears the cry. So one of the first indicators of this is that this is a God who hears the cry of those who are disempowered. And what we're, where we are now in the story, we've, we've kind of gone all the way through like Old Testament, New Testament. Now we're going to double back to a story in the book of Numbers. And the book of Numbers is a book that came out of this time between being enslaved and having a place of their own. So what's going on is you have this group of people in the book of Numbers who are all sort of trying to figure out what it means for us to be the people that we were created to be. And one of the people, the person who has been responsible for leading this group of people is a guy named Moses. And Moses is not alone in his leadership role. He actually has two siblings. He has a sister, Miriam, and his brother, Aaron. And so this, by the way, is my outline. So if you look at that outline and you're like, this is what the sermon's going to be, and you totally are like, oh, obviously I understand everything now, so I'll just go. So that's fine. Um, so that's some, sometimes it's helpful to me to just be able to look back at like the, the overall outline. So, um, so Moses has a sister named Miriam and a brother named Aaron, and they are... Moses is the main like point person in leadership, but these two have a lot of power and a lot of influence as well. So this weird story shows up in the book of Numbers, and we're going to look at it. So in, in the book of Numbers, chapter 12, beginning of verse 1, it says, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. So just in case you didn't get it the first time, Moses married a woman who is a Cushite. What does that even mean? So the the nation of Cush... Or, the people, people who would have been Cush, I would have been from, uh, the nation of Cush is modern day Ethiopia. So what's going on here is you have Moses's sister and brother expressing some amount of unhappiness about the fact that Moses has married a woman from what is now Ethiopia. And, and we could have lots of conversations about like the different ways that this could have been problematic and, and the different, all, all the different avenues that might have created some amount of friction here. But something that's really helpful to know, to, know that, about this is most of the characters in the Bible, or arguably all of the characters in the Bible, are not white, which may come as a total shock to anybody who grew up in a, in a Sunday school with like blonde haired, blue eyed Jesus murals, you know, and like smiling Noah on a floating zoo. You know what I mean? Like, regardless of what perhaps you've been shown in early childhood, like these are not 
stories about white people. So, uh, so probably very likely Moses and his family would have looked like someone who today w we would say is from the Middle East. And so this, uh, what you would probably, if you imagine somebody you know who is um, originally from like Iran or Saudi Arabia, or I mean, they, they had just been in Egypt, so like that sort of region. And so you have people who have a certain amount of like skin tone and hair texture and these kinds of things. But then Moses marries a woman who isn't one of them. She actually comes from a place where people have much, much darker skin. And whatever is about to happen as a result of this, or what, whatever's about to happen in the story springs out of a moment where Moses's sister and brother are having a hard time like showing any sort of grace to their sister-in-law because she is a Cushite. That's been made abundantly clear. So. What we learn right off the bat in this story, before anything else, is that, and stay with me, because this is going to blow everybody's mind. Thousands of years ago, thousands of years ago, it was possible for a person to have racist in-laws. What? I know. <laughs> Everybody, I'll give you a moment to, ke to catch your breath. Like that, so thousands, something we would never see today, but thousands of years ago, you might have a conflict with your, with your brother and sister-in-law because of a, a racist attitude that they expressed out in the open. So that's what's going on here. So whatever happens next happens because this is springing out of some amount of racial animosity between Moses' sister and brother and this person that Moses has married from Cush. So in uh, Numbers, so let's just go back and start it. So it says, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushai wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Now, so basically they say, we don't like that Moses has married this woman, but we've got power. People listen to us. We have some amount of authority. So now it's starting to get a little bit dangerous. And then verse three is the most ridiculously misplaced verse in the entire Bible, which is, it, it has nothing to do with the rest of the story. It's in parentheses as if the, like the actual translators were like, I don't know. So then in, um, so in verse three, it says, now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth, which is hilarious because uh, one of the more traditional theories about the authorship of this book is that Moses wrote it. So, <laughs> so I love that Moses, in a, in a story about, like assuming that Moses wrote it, and that's a whole other conversation, but let's assume that that's, that that's true. Moses, in, in the middle of a, a story about how his brother and sister were being mean to his wife, he just like slides in with just this little comment about, and by the way, I am more humble than anyone you've ever met in your whole life. Life, just by the way. So anyway, so that comes out of nowhere. It has nothing to do with the rest of the story, but it's there. So we saw it. So in verse four, it says, at once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, come out of the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them went out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and, Aaron and Miriam when the two of them stepped forward. Uh, so the two of them stepped forward and then God begins to say some pretty harsh words to this. And then in verse 10, it says, when the cloud lifted it from, from above the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous. Now, leprous is sort of a catch-all term for any sort of unwanted skin condition. And so it says, her skin was leprous. It became as white as snow. Aaron turned toward her and saw, and by the way, we could have a whole conversation about why is Miriam the only one getting punished here? And that seems very unfair. And that's a whole other conversation. And so, but th that's what's happening. So, it says, Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had a uh, defiling skin disease. And he said to Moses, please, my Lord, I ask you not to hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. To which I'm sure Miriam said, what do you mean us, dude? You look fine. So nothing has happened to Aaron here. And then in verse 12, it says, do not let her be like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten. So Moses cried out to the Lord, please God heal her. 
The Lord replied to Moses, if her father had spit in her face, which, okay, that's extreme. So if her father had spit in her face, would she not have been in disgrace for seven days? Confine her outside the camp for seven days, and after that she can be brought back. So seven, um, I'm sorry, so Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on till she was brought back. So this moment that begins with sort of this like racist impulse to respond negatively to their sister-in-law, ultimately like totally stops, everything just stops in its track for seven days because now Miriam has this skin disease that makes it impossible for her to, her to move on. Now, what's interesting is a lot of times in the scriptures, when you see someone being punished in, in a certain kind of way, a lot of times the punishment is a mirror opposite of whatever it is that they did. So then this, this, is, a, this is kind of a giveaway as to what the story is really about because their complaint is that Moses has married a woman that doesn't look like the rest of them. Her skin is too dark. And so the punishment is that Miriam's skin is stripped of all of its color for seven days. So this is like, the writer is shouting at you, like, this is about this. You know what I'm saying? Like the whole thing comes from, it comes out of a very hateful mentality about how we feel about somebody in our tribe who doesn't look like people who are in our tribe. And the whole thing sort of ends with this, this person sustaining some sort of punishment that is a mirror opposite of the thing that she was first upset about. Are you with me? So here's, here's why this is important. What we have, was, this is a story at its core about someone who is in a high up leadership position that has lots of societal and theological implications because this isn't just a group of people, this is a religiously centered group of people. And so you have these people who are religious leaders and some of them are voicing complaints or language that, that are very, very dark and upsetting that, are, that come out of a place of racial animosity. And it seems like this is taken very seriously. And everybody, the entire camp has to stop. Why? Because when someone who has power begins to express really dark racist language, then that gives everybody else who doesn't have as much power as them to do it too. Are you with me? So Miriam and Aaron are in leadership roles. The people with someone, or the problem, with someone at her level of influence and power expressing any kind of racist ideology is that it gives everybody else in the community permission to also mirror that behavior. So it gives people permission to dehumanize others and to, and, and to talk about people in negative ways, specifically as it has to do with their ethnicity or their skin color. So this is where we begin. I would argue this event is a, is a very interesting mirror to what happens all through the history of the US. And so we're going to be talking about something today that is very specifically American and very specifically some, something that has come out of white American Christianity. So we're not talking about um, like public policy. We're not talking about politics. We're not talking about candidates. What we're talking about is what happens when leadership inside of religious institutions, inside of a church that claims to be something that is meant to reflect the, the way of Jesus, what happens when language and ideology that looks like this shows up from a point of Christian leadership in the US. Are you with me? So, and there are all kinds of side roads we could go on. This is, there's a lot of content. Now I'm gonna have to go really fast, like way faster than usual. So I will try my best to, you know, keep, keep it paced at an even, even clip. But there's a lot of stuff we don't have time to talk about. We could talk about how people of um, Native American heritage have been treated. We could talk about people, we could talk about it from lots of different uh, points of view and there are other sermons that we could be having right now. Today what we're gonna do is we're gonna specifically focus on how have African Americans been treated by white churches, okay? So it's gonna get really sad really quick and um, sorry about what, wherever you go to lunch, it's gonna be a downer. So um, anyway, that, that's, a, that's a promise for me to you. So anyway, um, so I would argue that this exact pattern that we just see with Miriam and Aaron 
is woven into the, into the fabric of the American Christian story. So, in order to understand where we come from, we have to start with a guy named Cotton Mather. Cotton Mather was a Puritan minister in the early 1700s in the U.S., in Massachusetts. And this is before the Declaration of Independence. This is, or the, um, th this is before the Constitution. This is before the Revolutionary War was fought. So several decades before all this, you have these little pockets of Puritans who are, who are living in the, what, what were at that point known as the colonies. And so one of the most famous people at this time was a Christian pastor by the name of Cotton Mather. Cotton Mather became famous for a couple of reasons. And one of the things that he became famous for is that he began to preach and write in favor of African slavery, uh, in favor of white people owning African slaves. And we could have conversations, again, we could have a whole conversation about like indentured servanthood and other ethnicities that have been treated. But what we're specifically focusing on is how the white church has, it has affected African-American citizens. So, or African-American human beings who happen to live in this place or have been brought over here. So, what Cotton Mather begins to do is he begins to create an argument because one of the questions at this time is, is it or is it not okay to buy and own slaves that were brought here from Africa? And so Cotton Mather, because there are, there's a lot of points of view that, that would argue, no, that's not okay. And Cotton Mather, again, Puritan minister, Cotton Mather, begins to preach and write with a very specific message. And the message is, no, it is a moral good to enslave Africans. And, and, and the reason why is because when they live in Africa, they are barbaric and uncivilized. And so when we go over there, we send someone over there and bring Africans here and enslave them, we are giving them the gift of American civilization and Christianity. So does this, by the way, if you were here a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the Roman Empire, does that sound familiar at all? So, so what Cotton Mather begins to do is he begins to articulate this this argument that it is a moral good for white Christians to own slaves because how else will these Africans get saved? So the whole thing becomes a movement towards uh, arguing for, on behalf of, in, or, of like lifelong chattel slavery, specifically as a result of, well, that's that's our job. We have to we have to save people's souls. We're saving them from like living as barbarians in another country, and so which is so arrogant and so messed up. And um, in fact, Mather very famously said that, because um, in, in Mather's point of view, white is good and black is bad. And so one of the things that he writes in, in his work is that it is possible if you, if you were to help a, an African slave convert, then you, even though his skin would stay the same, his soul would become white because whiteness is better. That was his argument. This is, this is really messed up stuff. And so, that, and this is an argument that really caught on. In fact, uh, Mather wrote a book, and I won't even say the name of the book because it's offensive, but he wrote a book, and the book was so widely beloved and received among slave-owning people in the North that um, one Sunday in December of 1706, Cotton Mather's entire church got together, they pooled their money, and they went out and they bought him a slave as a gift. And he named the slave Onesimus, which is the name of a runaway slave in the Bible who is sent back to his master. This is messed up stuff. So Cotton Mather, he may not have created it, but he definitely popularized it. This language that gives white Christians permission and license to enslave African people. So for a while, after this, he, oh, by the way, I almost forget, this, this is just interesting. It has nothing to do with anything other than it's just more information that's fun. Um, not fun, actually, it's awful, but it's, it's, it's interesting. So um, one, of the, one of the things about Cotton Mather, this is actually not the thing that Cotton Mather is most famous for. He's, this is the second thing he's most famous for. The thing he's most famous for is Cotton Mather was one of the Puritan ministers who directly oversaw the Salem witch trials. 
So in addition to giving people permission to own other people, he also was responsible for murdering countless numbers of women and girls who were accused of being witches. So this, this guy's entire legacy is garbage. So that's, that is where Cotton Mather comes from, and that, that is sort of where the rest of everything else that happens after that can be traced back to the, the language that Cotton Mather gave about how to treat people or, how, or whether or not it was right, good, ethical, Christian, or whatever, to own other human beings. So for a while, even though in the North this is what's going on, in the South there are lots of evangelical preachers who opposed slavery. And so, which by the way is interesting because if I've, I've had more than one conversation about this with someone, with a white person. And one of the things that a white person is prone to saying in response to like the, the evils of slavery is, well, they didn't know any better. You know, like that, this, this, this is an argument I've heard before. Like, well, they didn't know any better. Everybody owned slaves. They, like nobody knew that it was wrong. I'm gonna call bull crap on that, and here's why. Because in the American South, sometime in, with, like, within the hundred years of Cotton Mather being alive and writing his, his stuff, one of the things that happens is that white churches in the South ch change from being anti-slavery to being pro-slavery, which raises the question, why would you do that? Why would you go backwards in your progress? Here's, here's why. Because one of the things that happens over time is that cotton becomes one of the chief exports of the entire U.S. Where is cotton grown? It's grown in the South. Who works on the cotton plantations? Slaves. Who's got all the money in the South? The people who own the slaves. So let's say you're a wealthy landowning slave owner and you live somewhere in like Georgia. And there is within like with, within close distance of you, there are two churches. One of those churches has a pastor who is preaching against slavery and another pastor who is preaching in favor of slavery. Which church is the rich landowner going to attend? He's going to start going to the church that, that tells him what he's doing is good. So people in the South are using Cotton Mather's arguments in order to change churches from being anti-slavery to pro-slavery because that's where the money is. So if you, if you follow the money, it gets really dark really quickly. So what happens over time is these churches in the South begin to get people into their churches that are giving lots of money and telling them just keep preaching the stuff that makes me feel good. And so that, that's what they do. And then the churches who are anti-slavery either kind of dwindle or just die out completely. And so over time, the, um, the white American Christian landscape in the South moves from being anti-slavery to being pro-slavery. And it's all coming out of the churches. So by, by the end of, or by the early to mid 19th century, so like the middle 1800s, most Southern slaveholders were going to church, and most Southern slaveholders would have told you that they are deeply devout Christians, and yet they are the people who are committing some really awful atrocities against other human beings who have been kidnapped and brought here. So, so, that, so despite all of this, you would, again, if you were to encounter a Southern slaveholder in, um, at this time, they would tell you, oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. I'm deeply devout. I believe so much in Jesus, and yet I own hundreds and hundreds of people sometimes. So um, in spite of arguments from abolitionists, again, because that was something that existed the entire time, in spite of these arguments from abolitionists, Southern Christian leaders went just all in on the enslavement of Africans, and it became something that they felt like they were entitled to. And so in, let's fast forward a bit, let's go up to 1845. In 1845 was the founding of the Southern Baptist Convention. Here's why, here's why that's interesting. Because at the time, before this, there was one, um, there was one denomination called the Baptist, like in America called Baptist. There were lots of different denominations, but one of the larger ones were the Baptists. At a certain point, Baptists in the North, where slavery is now illegal, 
ha have started to say, okay, we, we want to create some rules about who can and cannot lead churches and be missionaries. So one of the rules that they set up was no one who owns a slave can serve as the pastor of a church, uh, of a Baptist church, or be a missionary. Well, guess how well that went in the South. So people in the South decided to get really, really angry about this decree, and they break off from the Baptist denomination, and they create a new denomination known as the Southern Baptist Convention. We are, y'all, we are 10 miles away from the largest Southern Baptist seminary in the world right now where we are. That, that entire denomination exists specifically so that people could be allowed to continue to own slaves in spite of the fact that they held leadership positions in their churches. So, like this, this, so this creates an entire movement of Southern Baptists. So in the year 1860, y'all doing okay? This is a lot of information, I realize. So in the year 1860, Christian preachers and church leaders um, began to strongly argue that the South should secede from the country, should like basically break off, which would ultimately cause the Civil War. Because after Abraham Lincoln is elected, one of the things that people start to really talk about something they were really afraid of was Lincoln is going to make us like free all of the slaves. Lincoln is going to make slavery illegal and we can't have that because our whole economy runs on all this free labor we've got. So what they do, the pastors, not the landowners, not the politicians, the pastors are the loudest voice in the room saying we need to secede from the union so that people can continue to own slaves. And again, you can trace all of this ideology back to what Cotton Mather said, because they continue to tell themselves, this is right, this is good. In spite of arguments from, from ab abolitionists, there were all these Christian leaders who were saying, no, we, we wanna dig in and we need to secede from the union so we can still be allowed to own slaves. So spoiler alert, the Civil War is fought, the South loses, the North wins, and slavery is officially abolished in the US and nothing racist ever happened ever again. <laughs> the end. No, I'm just kidding. That's absolutely not true. Stuff just keeps getting worse. So after the, after the end of the Civil War, there are lots of uh, specifically former slave owners and, and former Confederate soldiers who are really, really upset about how this whole thing went down. And so there are eight Confederate soldiers, all from Tennessee, who get together and they decide to form a club. And they call the club the Ku Klux Klan. And so what they do is they begin to say, we will continue to remind non-white people what their place is. And we will continue to subjugate them, we will commit violent acts against them, and we will do it all with crosses. By the way, um, it's, it's useful to know that when, you, when we talk about the activities of the KKK, the evil, uh, like unbelievably indefensible activities of the KKK, one of the things that they're most famous for is burning crosses. They don't call it cross burning though, they call it cross lighting. You know why? Because it's not that they're saying like, we're getting rid of our Christianity, it's the opposite. They go into the night and they set a cross on fire because they believe that their job is to illuminate the way of Jesus in the world. So this whole thing creates, th this movement now creates this, this very violent, very dark, evil organization. And it's estimated that by the middle of the 1920s, there were over 40,000 pastors who were card-carrying members of the KKK. Not 40,000 people, 40,000 pastors. The odds of you attending a church in the South and your pastor not being a member of the KKK were not great. So in fact, <clears throat> there's a, a theologian, a white theologian who was alive at the time named Reinhold Niebuhr. And Niebuhr writes this. He says, if there were a drunken orgy somewhere, I would bet 10 to one that a church member was not part of it. But if there were a lynching, I would bet 10 to one that a church member was part of it. I don't find people belonging to churches giving a guarantee of emancipated race attitude or a high type of morality. We can't assume that at all. We have it sometimes, but we can't assume it. In other words, my observation, Reinhold Niebuhr's observation was, 
there's, there's more violence and racism in white churches than almost anywhere else in, in the country. So uh, there was another, uh, there was a writer named Ida B. Wells who very famously and very bravely, she was a black woman writing in the South and covering like the lynching culture that had sort of developed. And this is what she writes. She, she writes, white church folks were too busy saving souls of white Christians from burning in hellfire to save the lives of black ones from the present burning in the fires kindled by white Christians. So like her observation in traveling the country and writing about and observing hundreds of lynchings, one of the major takeaways for Ida B. Wells was, there's a lot of Christians in there. And that's really upsetting and it's very disturbing. So, so the culture of violence towards people of African-American descent continue to, continue, like, continue to ramp up in, in the early uh, part of the 20th century. So then at a certain point you have uh, in 1960, uh, there's a preacher in, in the early 1960s, there was a preacher from Mississippi named Samuel Bowers. And Samuel Bowers, again, a preacher from Mississippi, believed that the civil rights movement was an outgrowth of communism and that it was God's will for white people to oppose the civil rights movement because the, the, the entire movement led by Martin Luther King Jr. among others and like including um, con current Congressman John Lewis among many others, he, the argument that Bowers makes is they wanna make you communist. So we need to do everything we can, we, we can to avoid being like forced into communism by the civil rights movement. Does this language sound familiar to anybody? So, so Bowers, this again, pastor, begins to really rail against the civil rights movement, specifically, um, specifically as, as it pertains to the integration of schools. And so, um, in fact, there was another famous pastor by the name of Jerry Falwell, not the first time his name has come up in the series. And uh, Jerry Falwell, who was a famous pastor, who he founded uh, Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia, began to openly speak out against the civil rights movement and specifically began to criticize Martin Luther King Jr. publicly. And one of the things that he said about Martin Luther King Jr. was, that guy's just way too political, which the, the very thought of Jerry Falwell calling anybody too political is crazy because like, just go Google him sometime. Um, be careful, but go Google him sometime. Um, so Falwell decides to create an organization and he calls the organization the Moral Majority. And the moral majority was specifically created to stand in the face of so-called persecution of white Christians, specifically as it had to do with school integration. So if you meet somebody today who's a supporter of the moral majority, they will tell you that the organization was created to oppose abortion. That is not true. The moral majority was created specifically to stand in opposition against the integration of schools. White parents didn't want their kids going to school with black children. And so Jerry Falwell and his moral majority create a system that fights hard, like really hard against this, what he called the persecution of white Christians, which again, if, if, if any of this is sounding familiar, that's probably not a coincidence. So um, then at a certain point, Martin Luther King Jr., who's like the figurehead, the point person of, of the civil rights movement, the fight for equality for, for non-white people in, in the US, Martin Luther King Jr. is in Birmingham and he gets arrested. And one of the things about Martin Luther King Jr. that people don't really understand now, um, because we've sort of given him like saint status in the US. He was not beloved during his lifetime. If, in fact, most data that was taken at the time suggests that white American Christians held a about 30% favorability rating for Martin Luther King Jr. He was not loved at all by white Christians. And so and even people who claimed to agree with what he was doing or why he was doing it would often criticize him by saying like, well, we, we agree that there should be equality. We just wish he wouldn't 
protest like this. We wish he would be more civil in his protest. We, we wish there would be more, um, we, we wish he would protest in a way that is more acceptable to us. Which again, if, if this isn't ringing bells, I don't know what to tell you. So, so they begin to criticize Martin Luther King Jr. saying, yeah, maybe he has a point, but we're not, we, we really don't like his methods. And so, uh, in, including a group of eight pastors from Birmingham, a group of eight clergy people from Birmingham. And so, after Martin gets arrested in Birmingham, we're on a first name basis now, I'll just call him Martin. So after MLK gets, gets arrested in Birmingham, these eight clergy members write an open letter and they all sign it, basically telling him he needs to calm his movement down and he needs to fight for this the right way, the appropriate way, the way that they prefer him to write. And this makes him furious. And so what he does is he sits down in his jail cell and he writes a letter, a letter from Birmingham jail, as, they, as, as they've often called it. And so, um, and so one of the things that he writes in his letter is this. He says, shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. In other words, and he, one of the terms he uses is white moderate. And he starts specifically criticizing a group of white pastors and clergy people in Birmingham. And he's saying, look, the white moderates is, is what is really just driving me crazy. Like, Basically, like I know where a Klansman stands on this whole thing. What I'm having a lot of frustration with are people who say that they are on our side but aren't fighting alongside of us. And so, that, and, and the criticism was directly pointed at Christian pastors in Birmingham. So, when, when you read Letter from Birmingham Jail, it's th this is a critique of white Christian pastors in the South who are not willing to speak out for the poor and the disenfranchised and the marginalized. And so, um, let's see, there's so much more. Okay, so in the 1970s, um, there was an evangelical leader named Peter Wagner, and he wrote a book called Our Kind of People. And the entire book is an argument for why churches should not be integrated racially. This is after the Civil Rights Movement. And so Wagner writes this book basically arguing that a healthy church should be filled with exactly one kind of person. Guess what kind of person he wants it to be filled with. So. And he begins to argue that the more diverse and integrated a church gets, the, the less it looks like the kingdom of God, which is a crazy argument to make, but that's what he does. And so this, and people really respond to this because this is how people, people he, he doesn't live in a vacuum. A lot of people are agreeing with what he has to say. And so um, he argues that a healthy church is filled with, again, our kind of people. Uh, there's one of the most famous universities in, or Christ, Christian schools in the US is a school called Bob Jones University. Until the year 2000, it was against school policy for interracial couples to date. Until the year 2000, I was in college when they started letting people of different races date each other on campus without getting expelled. So like, this isn't like an ancient thing that we're talking about. This is something that's been going on since, like in my adulthood. And so um, the current head of the KKK right now, because they are still around, which if you've been watch, if you watch the news, you already knew that, but the current head of the KKK is a pastor from Boone County, Arkansas. Not some random guy out in the sticks, a pastor from Boone County, Arkansas, right now in 2018, is the leader of the KKK. And then finally, just like two months ago, there was a very famous pastor, white pastor, who wrote a statement. In fact, it was the week that Latasha Morrison was here, amazingly. Um, he wrote a statement and he put it out into the world and the statement was basically saying like, people need to stop talking about racism in the church because it's over. Like pe pe we, people are imagining a problem that, that's not really there. So we just need to stop talking about it. And 4,400 other pastors signed it. So what is the point of this? I mean, we've been able to track the whole story from Miriam and Aaron all the way down to something that happened two months ago. And yet there will be people who hear this and say, that's not real. 
that's not right. You know what I mean? So what's the point? Is the point here just to make everybody sad? Because this makes me sad. Like when I was doing the research for this, there were, there were times I just like left the library and just like felt just really like sad and um, tired. So what's the point, if not to just make us all sad? The point is this. We need to know the story we come from. We need to know what we have inherited, even the stuff that we don't want to see, even the stuff we wish that we could ignore. Look at what uh, this writer Paul writes in um, the book of Romans chapter 12. It's just one verse, but it's on your bulletin. In Romans 12, beginning in verse 2, it says, Paul writes, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So the invitation here is to have some, something that Paul refers to as a new mind. How do, we, how, do we, how do we pursue a new mind? Well, it begins by not conforming to a pattern. What we have just witnessed a lot of what we have just witnessed. There's way more. I, I had to cut like, most of the stuff just to make room. But what, what we have just talked about, what we have just witnessed, is a very clear and present pattern in a white American Christianity right now. It, and we didn't just get it. It didn't just show up yesterday, and it didn't die out somewhere between the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement. It's still here. The pattern is still here. And so what Paul is saying is, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What does it look like to renew your mind? Well, maybe the first thing we, we need to do is acknowledge that there is a pattern, and then we have to, have to make choices that get us out of the pattern. Are you with me? So we have just explored this pattern. We've seen how dark and how destructive and how painful it is, how traumatizing it is for a significant portion of the, of the population. And so we've seen the pattern. We, now everybody here knows the pattern. We've seen it. So now the question is, will we acknowledge that the pattern exists? Will we break out of the pattern? And then will we, cho will we choose a new pattern to participate in instead? So it is important to know our story, even the parts that we wish we could ignore, e even the stuff that we don't want to talk about. In fact, um, <clears throat> a few weeks ago, uh, some, I, was, I was talking to somebody, and, um, and they were asking me just like what I'm working on, what sermon. And I, I told them, like, I'm, I'm working on this sermon, and we'll be talking about this in a few weeks. And he said, I don't, I don't think that's a good idea. I really don't think you should talk about this. And I said, why? And he said, well, you're just gonna make people upset. You know, you're, you're just gonna like, you're just gonna make people have more confusion and more questions. You're just gonna like drag all this stuff up that doesn't need to be dragged up. And my response to that was, this is the pattern. Like it's our job to name the pattern. And, and one, of the, one of the questions I get a lot as a point of crit criticism is that I don't talk about sin enough. Okay, let's talk about the sin of white supremacy since we're here, you know, we have this pattern. It's a pattern that we inherited. It's a pattern that we've participated in, whether we know it or not sometimes. And it is, it's a pattern. It's our pattern. It's a pattern that not that comes from elected officials, not that comes from business owners. It's a pattern that was born in white churches in the US. This is our pattern. And so the question is, are we going to be aware of the pattern? And then what will we do now that we know that the pattern is there? So it's important to know the story, even the parts we don't want to see. It's also important to remember, we've been wrong before. This is something that continues to baffle me. Anytime somebody says, well, no, it's different now because things aren't like the way they used to be. Every generation has said that, and every generation has been judged by the next generation as getting it wrong. Are you with me? So if we've been wrong before, it's possible that we're wrong again. So when we have somebody saying like, no, the problem isn't really there. People are misreading it. People are misunderstanding it. Racism isn't a thing. Only people who talk about racism are the real racists. Like all, the, all these kinds of things that we hear. And look, we've been in this pattern for hundreds of years. And it's, it's like we so badly do not want to break out of the pattern. It's important to remember, we have been wrong before. And what if we're wrong again? In fact, historically, we've been wrong more than we've been right on this, on this particular issue.
So when we refuse to listen, when we minimize somebody else's story and their pain, we run the risk of being wrong again. We run the risk of continuing the pattern and we just become part of the next generation stories about how we got it wrong again. So one thing that's helpful to understand is, and I'm, I did not come up with this. This is, there's a guy named uh, Ibram Kendi who wrote a book called Stamp from the Beginning. It's brilliant. I have a lot of this content um, kind of came, came from a lot of his research. And, um, and one of the things he talks about is there's no such thing as not a racist. Like when you bring this up, a lot of times in white spaces, what happens is somebody will get really defensive and they'll say, well, wait, I'm not a racist. Well, that's not really the point. There's no such thing as not a racist. Kendi makes the argument there is racism and then there is anti-racism. You can't be not a something. You have to be something. You know, are you with me? So to be, there, there, are, there are ways that we can participate in racism and there are ways that we can participate in pushing back and fighting against racism. There's racism and there's anti-racist. So like the, the notion of I am not racist, like, that just tells me what you're not. That just tells me like the absence of a thing. But what we're invited to be is, is people who aren't just like, like polite to people. What we're invited to be is advocates for people who have historically been marginalized, not just in our country, in our communities, in white churches. So uh, white supremacy is not our fault. This is, again, one of the points of defense that people give is like, well, I never owned a slave or I never like kicked somebody off of a bus or something like that. It's not the point. This isn't your fault, but it is your responsibility. All this stuff from Cotton Mather on back, you didn't cause that. But we live, we live now with the remnants of the pattern. And so it may not, it, it isn't our fault. We, we all have a pretty solid alibi for the last 300 years, but it is our responsibility. We, we do owe it to our friends and our neighbors and our fellow citizens to try our best to get this right. So what do we do? And this is always like the next question. And, um, and it's not an, as easy as it is to answer because I've been looking for that answer for a while. But um, I would say the first thing that we can do specifically uh, to those of us with an earshot of my voice who are white, um, we need to listen and we need to engage. We need to pass the mic to somebody who has something to say. Um, <clears throat> one, one, of the, one of the mistakes I think we as, um, when I say we, I mean white people, make is that we try and minimize and explain away people's experiences of systemic racism in this world. And what if instead of saying, no, you misunderstood that, or you're misreading it, you're being too sensitive. What if instead of doing that, what if instead we leaned in and we said, can you tell me more about that? Can you tell me more about other experiences that you've had that look like that? Not so that we can like then tell them, explain their experience to them so that we can listen and we can understand. Part of this comes from reading books. I've been reading so many books. I've, I've, I've tried to provide a, a list of the books that I have found most helpful um, in, the, in the bulletin. I, I'd say like, go find something to read. Begin to learn. There's lots of podcasts that explore this. Go, if you, if you like to listen to things, go listen to the podcast, go listen to audiobooks. What does it mean to listen? And then what does it mean to lean in and say, okay, now that I know this, what does it mean for me to say, now that I know this, what can I do? Or how can I participate? How can I be an advocate for somebody? So then that's the second thing. So the second thing is just listen and engage. And sometimes that's all you have the ability to do because we're starting so far behind. Some of us just don't know enough to really know how to make a, a good choice in this context. So. Listen, engage, um, again, pass the microphone anytime you get a chance to, and then um, be advocates for people who have a long history of being marginalized in this country, and this, because I think this is what Jesus calls us to do. Look at the book of Micah. This will be the last thing we look at. Um, in the book of Micah, it's this ancient Hebrew prophet, and he's writing to this group of people who are sort of puzzling out, like, what does it mean for us to be followers of God? And in Micah 6, beginning in verse 6, it says, 
With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for, for my transgression, the fruit of my sin, or the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And so the question that the poet is asking is, what does it take to, do, to participate in what God is doing in the world? What are the things that God requires of us? And then the answer comes in verse eight, where it says, God has shown you, O mortal, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. So all these religious exercises and all these things that people do to make themselves feel more spiritual or more like in tune with something, th this particular passage is saying like, yeah, maybe, maybe all that stuff isn't nearly as important as justice and mercy and humility. When we advocate for people who have been historically disenfranchised and marginalized, we are engaging, with a, we are engaging a story that is being told by a God who loves justice. When we show mercy, when we listen to somebody's story and we choose to keep listening and we choose not to get defensive, we are showing mercy. When we ask more questions and we lean in and we, we engage with curiosity, we are, we are at least at some level being humble. We are acting justly and loving mercy and walking humbly. That is the call. The call here is not to just feel really bad. The call here is to see the pattern, break out of the pattern, and then to choose instead to live a life that is full of justice and mercy and humility. And justice and mercy and humility in the American church as it is today means listening when people tell us, I'm having a different experience in this life than you are, and I really wish you would acknowledge it. And I really wish I, really wish I could stop trying to explain my trauma to you and have you not believe me. So this is a long way to go. I have a lot to learn, as do we all. So may we, may we break out of the pattern. May we find that when we, when we choose to listen and when we choose to engage, when we choose to show compassion to people, we are choosing the path of the renewed mind. We are choosing to break out of a pattern and have a different journey that we're being invited to pursue. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for, um, we, th we thank you for allowing us to be in this space at this time. And for those of us who have been victims of this pattern that we've just explored, to our brothers and sisters who are people of color in this community, in this country, who, who not only experience daily trauma, but who also are constantly being told that their trauma isn't real. May we repent of the times that we have minimized somebody else's story. And may we instead choose to engage those stories with grace and humility, with justice and mercy and love. May we, may those of us with any amount of power and authority, like Miriam and Aaron, may we use that wisely, and may we, may we use that space and that power and that leverage, that platform, may we use it to amplify the voices of those who are being unheard. May we use it, again, to bring mercy and justice and humility into the world. Forgive us of all the ways that we have participated in the pain of others, and help us to become advocates and friends and allies and co-partners in the rebuilding of, of how people are treated in this world. May, may those of us in church spaces, may we lead the way towards equality and reconciliation and stop being the voices that hold us back. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.